Welcome to a special edition of Conduct Detrimental. Your host for this evening is Dan Lost. I'm joined by Taryn Sharma, Mike Lawson, Mike Krevchenko. We got a packed house, gentlemen, to discuss the chaos that is the world of college sports. Welcome to the show, my friends. Yeah, Dan, how great is it that there's always something exciting to talk about? Like, I feel like the NCAA is just smiling upon us because they're like, oh, you want news? We'll give you news. Um, and Taryn is joining us from uh, lovely New Orleans, where his team is competing in the uh, sports law moot court competition. Is that fair? Am I saying it right? Yeah, Mardi Gras Invitational, Tulane University. Shout out to him. Um, Taryn, did you partake in any festivities on like on Bourbon Street or, or anything of, of the sort? We had a great time in the French Quarter this evening. No further comment. Okay. <laughs> Mike A, Mike L, we got a packed house. We had to bring in all of the gang here to break down what was a busy week. So we joined, seems like seems like a month ago. We joined on Tuesday night. We said, okay, Florida's got this investigation. Tennessee's got this investigation. Let's bring in our pal Pete Nakos. And let's talk about what these investigations are going to look like. Let's talk about really the next phase here. Let's talk about what, why one case is different than the other. Let's talk about Florida State. We talked about a lot of things. We set the landscape. Um, sometimes people say that we take too long to record episodes, but I just want the week to develop. Sometimes we record on Friday. That we recorded, or last week we recorded on a Tuesday. Turned out that was a big mistake because the following day we had my- following morning. That next following morning. morning. Monster news. That monster news, unless you're living under a rock, was Tennessee, Tennessee's uh, the attorneys general. Taryn, thank you for correcting me on Twitter for that one guy in the reply that pointed out. Probably unnecessary. I gave it to him. You know, sometimes if they're trying to make a point, you just say, yeah, sure, whatever. Okay. Attorneys general. I'm going to – thank God this is not on video (laughs) because – the, the long and short being Tennessee files a lawsuit. Uh, attorney General, along with Virginia's Attorney General, they file suit in Eastern District of Tennessee. Now, since that has happened, we're going to break down that lawsuit. We're going to break down the papers that were exchanged back and forth um, for both sides, pro and against a temporary restraining order and injunction filing, a decision that was made today, and a hearing that is, I think, still scheduled the week for today on this since-denied injunction. And we thought that would be the story. We're all ready. We're all reading papers back and forth. And then a, I guess, petition filed back in September of 2023 for Dartmouth men's basketball to be declared as employees. All of a sudden is granted. The world of college sports is insane. Um, and we are here. So, um, Mike K., I'm going to let you take lead off here. Okay? Don't look too surprised. Okay? Biggest thoughts on the Tennessee lawsuit being filed and we'll slowly unpack the behemoth that is and the decision that was filed today uh I, I'm I'm just glad the ball's rolling personally uh I, it was only time uh I mean what from 2021 to now there were no punishments handled there was really nothing in terms of the NCAA um really taking any sort of stand on NIL just kind of allowing the beginning stages to play out 
uh, seeing how these schools play, seeing how the student athletes play, obviously, and a lot of it, um, you know, more just on the prohibition of recruitment and not being able to actually pay for play directly. Um, but here we are. I'm glad Tennessee, um, I, I, a program like this, especially, um, you know, this is no Joe Schmo program. I mean, this is a significant program in college sports, football, basketball, everything across the board. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm ready to ready to see where this goes. And uh, the complaint uh, that you had sent us, um, it was a long read and it was really, really good. Um, really, really good to see. And uh, Taryn, I know, I'm sure uh, people, the, the people have been, you know, ready to hear your point of view, ready to hear you speak. I've been seeing a lot of good, good, uh, goodwill on Twitter from people uh, shouting out Taryn from the podcast. So I want to. Yeah, well, I, look, I I think it's interesting. So the, the origin of this, obviously, is that uh, the NCAA was looking into the recruitment of Nico Imaleva, which uh, I think was really big news in the circles that we kind of travel in for several months now. Um, were you surprised that the TRO wasn't granted? Um, the TRO, obviously, on the basis of, like, whether there would be irreparable harm done. Was anyone kind of surprised that that happened? Because I I felt like a Tennessee judge ruling on a Tennessee case was going to grant that. So I, I was a little bit surprised that that didn't happen. Dan? Okay. Was that a rhetorical question? Because I, no, I was... No, no, it's a, it's a genuine question. Was anyone else surprised? I, I was surprised. So I guess a couple things. First, I want to give a big shout out to Chris Gabriel who I wasn't really ready to go full bore into this Tennessee lawsuit. I like picking my spots in the podcast. And our guy, Chris Gabriel, unsolicited, just goes, you know who knows the answers to all these questions on this Tennessee lawsuit? Dan Lust, Conduct Detrimental Podcast. They put an episode out last night. So that episode is the early frontrunner for our most popular episode of the year. Welcome to all of our our new found audience from um, Knoxville. Now, I um, also, um, I know GBR from my uh, Nebraska days. Go Big Red. I kept seeing a lot of GBOs. And I'm like, what yeah, is Yeah, Go Big Orange. Go Big Orange. Um, you know, I'm not sure why that's GBO, but shout out to the Vols. Also, okay, anyway, anyway. After a week of doing uh, media in uh, Knoxville and the surrounding Nashville and Tennessee, I feel like I have a good handle on the people of Tennessee. Now, what I didn't want to say, I, I have the receipts. I can show you messages I sent to people. The standard for getting a temporary restraining order or preliminary injunction one of them, amongst a couple, likelihood of success in the merits being one of them. I, I like likelihood of success in the merits, but one of them was showing irreparable harm. So I went on radio shows around the greater Tennessee area, and I said, all Tennessee has this point is an investigation. So like, maybe at some point they're going to have some type of harm that's going to be pretty bad and maybe rises to the level of irreparable harm that requires some type of an injunction or requires this proceeding to be put in place to stop the enforcement, but it's just an investigation. They have not been punished at all. So I'm like, I'm not quite sure we have irreparable harm. I don't mean to say that part so loud, but I went on radio and I said, that's the weakest part of the case. Could it still be granted in the state of Tennessee? Sure. Do I think the NCAA loses every case they enter into? Sure. Do I think this case is probably strong on the merits on a declaratory judgment action? Sure. But on a preliminary injunction, temporary restraining order, like I don't see the irreparable harm. It's just an investigation. And that's... um. You know, Mike, you can certainly touch on this. I think that's the what really what the court said today in that decision that we're not giving you the injunction, but 
don't get upset, Tennessee, because we really like this case in the long run. I think that's the biggest takeaway is and shout out to a friend of the friend of the pod, Tom Morris. He always comes in with some big NCAA matters. We had him on, obviously, for the Big Ten debacle debauchery, I should say, actually. Um, and then now we have him, you know, giving us the 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 scoops on Tennessee and the and everything happening with the investigation. I mean, the biggest thing, and, and Tom actually tweeted this out, is that the judge just basically skips past like the TRO. He denies it, but then basically says, "Hey, NCAA, you're going to lose. Like, you're you're not going to win this case. Tennessee and Virginia have merit, and they have a good shot at, at winning this. And I mean, they're the interesting piece of this. And Dan, I agree with you. I think that it didn't surprise me that they didn't um, that they rejected the TRO because there was no cognizable harm, irreparable harm. It, but it's interesting about the timing. So this comes out a day before the NLI day, not NIL, but NLI, National Letter of Intent Day for uh, for football uh, athletes for the, the regular period here. I think it's both D1, D2, um, which is tomorrow, the, the 7th. We're recording on the 6th. That's when the judge made the order. So, I mean, that is where the, the, the restraint comes in. But again, it, there's no cognizable harm here because – it's only because these rules are restricting them from having these type of NIL communications with these athletes who would potentially sign NLI, uh, National Letters of Intent, with their school. So um, I also thought that that was interesting was the – and we'll get in maybe a little bit more now into the papers, and I'll kick it to you on your guys' thoughts too, is the NCAA's response papers here – uh, just in general about the, the suit is that they are saying that Tennessee is suing uh, as an antitrust violation that the the rules on name, image, and likeness are restraining their athletes. But what's interesting is the NCAA says that Tennessee actually doesn't even have uh, NIL laws within their state. So it's actually prohibited for NIL. Um, the response kind of came in on that with Tennessee basically saying like, yes, we don't have any law on the book, but we don't restrain athletes from having communications with collectives and things like that. So it was kind of like a little bit of a back and forth there, but it was an interesting argument that the NCAA was saying like, which is funny too, because the NCAA has taken such a hands-off approach here. And then all of these States started passing all of these laws and they got afraid because it was like kind of a race to the bottom with these States passing these NIL laws. And then now they're using that to their, maybe advantage saying that there is no state law uh, allowing these athletes to have, uh, if I'm a Tennessee legislator and I'm like for college athletics at this point on the books, like tomorrow or this week is like an NIL bill. Which, yeah, I mean, who's not going to be right. Like, unless you're like the the biggest Memphis fan in the world and you just hate UT athletics, you're not going to be against this, right? This is something that is going to, garner all sorts of support but it's not surprising to me that the ncaa would say this but at the same time look i I mean you've taken the hands-off approach so to try to enforce rules at this point when you haven't been even willing to go into rules specifically you've been saying here are these guidelines and we're proffering these guidelines basically once a quarter and we're expecting you to follow them and by the way, they're nebulous. They change all the time. They have no real strict guidance. And 
look, we could change them next quarter. It would be completely different. Imagine if the United States Congress did that. You couldn't. It would have such a chilling effect upon business, something that is totally unacceptable. Meanwhile, the NCAA, college athletics as a whole, continues to make money off of these individuals and then tries to restrict their ability to take advantage of rights which are fundamentally theirs. That's the key thing. These rights belong to them. Your name, image, and likeness rights are yours, inherent by the Constitution. Hold on. Taryn, before you get all up on your soapbox, we'll stick to Tennessee because you can get that over in our next topic on Dartmouth. As we stick to Tennessee, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point out one of the all-time lines that has appeared in a sports law filing. Uh, So just for a point of – just for some dates. So we have this lawsuit filed on a Wednesday. I believe that same day, Tennessee also made their application for a temporary restraining order, preliminary injunction, and a permanent injunction. So they set a briefing schedule up. The briefing schedule says Saturday, the NCAA has to put in their opposition. And on Sunday, the you know Tennessee Attorney General and Virginia Attorney General have to put their reply in. Okay, so the NCAA's paper, I think the one that people were kind of making fun of the most is that, hey, if we don't have the ability to enforce these NIL rights, there's going to be a collection of talent in the the upper tier of the power fives. It's like, that's already happening. Like, why is that a big deal? So everyone kind of made fun of the NCAA's response. And then, um, you know, uh, the NCAA was trying to interpret Tennessee law. So this is this line that I liked. Quote, the NCA apparently knows the meaning of Tennessee's law better than Tennessee's attorney general. The argument is both wrong and irrelevant. So Tennessee, you thinks that, you know, I think they have a good argument. But Taryn, to the point that you just raised, I don't think NCA successfully opposes like they win. It's almost like uh, when we watch like football games, it's like when they watch the replay, like the call is confirmed. It says like the call stands like the court at this point didn't have enough to um, really put that in place. But I don't think they're saying that the NCAA won, won their argument by any means. They're saying that Tennessee didn't satisfy their burden of showing irreparable harm. So I don't think the NCAA should take this as a, a large win as much as it is as a minor speed bump to what seems inevitable. Um, okay, so as we sit here... Real quick, can you say for, for anyone that's listening to this that may not be well-versed in this whole area... What is the standard that they were asking Tennessee to meet? And is that a high standard or a low standard? It's a high standard. You have to show irreparable harm. You have to show likelihood of success in the merits. But for our purposes, what I was telling people is like, listen, they they probably are going to win on the declaratory judgment. The court is going a step further and saying they're going to win on the antitrust claims. Um, But they're just saying like, hey, right now, like I was was telling someone from Tennessee that reached out, like it's not quite ripe yet, but. I mean, they were, I don't know what the harm, you know, granted, I think Tennessee had an interesting filing and I agree with most of what they wrote, but like, what is the harm like right now? Like I, I got it. A lot of it's tentative. Like this could happen. This may happen. Like, I don't know. We've been living in this world for like three years, like because Tennessee is being investigated, there's some chilling effects on, you know, we put that there, but I will say there've been some people I, say, Oh, go ahead, Mike. I, I did want to mention too. I, I, I when I said it before, I didn't I, I didn't elaborate. The NCAA's argument on the law was regarding the inducement, not like the actual law, because Tennessee has NIL law. I meant like there's like a, a section that's like not required inducements, right? And that's the whole purpose. The, the whole purpose is to protect the athletes, protect 
you know, the school and, and, and the inducement factor of it. So I just want to clarify that. But the other piece of it and what Dan just mentioned is the likelihood of success on the merits. I don't think anybody is ever going to deny that the NCAA restrains trade. They always have. They've been doing it for eternity. They're admitting so they're doing it. They're admitting it, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's no doubt that they've been restraining trade. They restrain these athletes in so many different ways, except their argument is more akin to that of like Major League Baseball, which actually has an antitrust exemption in the fact that these they're not collectively bargaining. So it's not like that similar argument that like the NFL might make or like a, a, you know, a, a major sports organization would make like that. But they're basically saying that they're voluntarily entering into these contracts and agreements, voluntarily per- participating with each conference. That's like the NCAA's argument. They've stood by that. But like this goes a little bit beyond it because the NCAA opened the door when they allowed these athletes to be compensated. And we're going to get into that with Dartmouth about – pay for play and allowing athletes to be compensated. But the the biggest break in what the NCAA has done and what we've been saying since July 1 of 2021 is that the, the, it's the end of the NCAA model as we've known, as we have previously known it, because every restraint that the NCAA has been able to do this, like so many years is being stopped. We've seen that with the Alston case. We're seeing it develop with the house case and the Johnson case. We're seeing every restraint possible on all these athletes just crumble brick by brick. And by the end of however many years this might play out, the NCAA's brick house is going to be completely collapsed. Mike, you're cooking, right? Like, so tell me, what is the thing that the NCAA has been begging for for the last two years, three years? Antitrust exemption. Oh, antitrust exemptions. I wonder why. And doubly, they're asking for federal NIL bills because they don't want to have the blame put on them. And it's less lawsuits. And then they've created this like super league that we talked about before, the super conference, that's still going to have well, problems. I, remains to be right. seen if that's going to happen. But I think let's, let's touch this here very quickly. Um, in the midst of all of this, we have uh, news coming, and I, I think Ross Dellinger was the first to report it. Um, he always is. Not always. Amanda Kristovich is right up in there, first to break the news on Dartmouth basketball, which we'll get to in a minute. That's um, true. Shout Amanda out to went to the went to the hearing. Shout out to Amanda, and then meanwhile, our guy Pete Nagos is breaking updates on the docket for this case. So. Ross hasn't been on the show. We've had everybody else on. Okay. But what I want, I, I bring this up here. There is what, what people, definitely not us, are referring to as the Alliance 2.0. The SEC and the Big Ten, there are reports, again, coming from Ross Dellinger, that the two conference commissioners, Tony Petiti and Greg Sankey, are going to work together. And I, I, I think they're sensing like, hey, the NCAA is not doing much to try to figure this out. You know, they're, they're putting all their eggs in the federal legislation basket, which hasn't proved helpful for two and a half years. Even pre-July 1st, 2021, they were having these hearings. Has not been successful. Charlie Baker's plan is to basically pull apart the haves and the have-nots in Division One. So you have the Big Ten and the SEC sitting there on the sidelines just saying like, hey, maybe we can figure this out better for everybody else. And there certainly have been some reports that the other conferences have looked to the SEC and the Big Ten. No one wants to step out of line, so they keep hitting up 
the Big Ten, the SEC, like, what should we do here? So now these two super conferences start talking to one another. And I've brought this up on other shows, so I always say I, I kind of try to consolidate our, our conversations here. It is very interesting timing at a time where, like, the NCAA can't figure this out. They look like they're imploding. They might not have any power. We're about to talk about it in a minute. They might have unionization amongst their ranks. I'm not really quite sure, like, what the NCAA's purpose is going to be. And I'm sure in these long conversations that, that Tony and Greg have had with one another, they've said, like, wouldn't it be Tony cool? Tony and Greg, first name basis. Tony and Greg, never spoken to either in my life, but it sounded sounded right. Like, why don't we just go do our own thing? Why are we dealing with the haves and the have-nots? What if we just did our own thing somewhere else? Nothing is preventing us from doing it. Board of Regents versus NCA. The schools and conferences are allowed to compete with the NCA when it comes to television deals. I, I'm sure that same logic would apply if we're talking about unfair restraints of trade. There can be a competitor to the NCA. Just nobody has, but I want people to pay close attention. These two conferences are very powerful, and now they're talking, and now they've aligned. Dan, I, I want to ask you a question. What makes you think that they are willing to? take the yoke upon themselves to to take any blame that comes it's i think so much easier to be in charge of a conference when i can just say you know the ncaa is doing stuff wrong if it's me and i'm in charge of the rules and it's me doing stuff wrong and people can blame me that's so much worse right i I think that they probably have the best perspective on how the rules should be generated. I Mitt Winter said today that they should just go ahead and declare uh, student athletes employees and get ahead of it. And that that's the way that they could really set precedent, set rules and really be in charge. And maybe that's the case, but isn't it like right now they have nothing to lose that they're, they're starting their own little party and and they can still blame the NCAA for all of the the lack of rights that they're granting towards the uh, the Why would athletes. they voluntarily do that? They're they're going to hold off as much as much as these as much as these conferences and schools are saying and are are definitely outspoken for their athletes and I think they truly are. They're really not going to dive into that until the NCAA gets either demolished or or has some sort of direct order. I don't know why they would fall. You, you think that they truly are? Like, you, you think that the conference heads genuinely feel that they should pay money out of whatever they're earning out of the NBC or ESPN contracts? No, I don't, I don't think they should. I don't think they no, feel that I way. No, I don't think that they feel that way either. I, I think that they're – No, I, I – Go ahead. On, a, on an individual level, like on a university level, every you know, they're going to support their athletes, especially in the name, image, and likeness factor. But like, I think it's also terrifying for all these schools and conferences because it's going to it's going to develop, right? Obviously, like we we're talking about, you know, we are pro. I don't know what your guys' opinions are, but we've generally talked about being pro employee status. I think because these athletes have a lot more protections, health benefits, you know, down the line for medical coverage and things like that. But at the same time, like. This is just the beginning. It's just the tip of the iceberg of what develops after this. You've got, you're you're going to have workers' compensation issues with these athletes. You're going to have there medical you coverage that goes well beyond. So there's 
there are so many things that are going to that are going to domino here, and schools and conferences and the NCAA don't want that okay. to happen. Mike, wait, no, no, Dan, hold on, Mike, you're absolutely on fire tonight. Like, absolutely, that is the whole thing, <laughs> right? Because they have somebody to blame, they can pay all the lip service that they want. Every school, every conference can say, we're totally in favor of the student-athletes getting everything that they deserve from the TV contracts. But are they the ones that are they're going ahead and declaring those things? No, of course not. Because even though they have the power to do that, genuinely they do. Like if, if a conference steps forward and says, hey, we're going to start paying our student-athletes, there's literally nothing that the NCAA can do. Because if you think about that, that's like 12 schools, 12 significant schools in the way that we're thinking about it with one of the major two conferences saying that we're going to do it. 12 schools or 14 schools saying we're going to start doing this. The NCAA is not going to have stomach for legislating the rules to stop that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, we're on the same page. I want to say the NCAA does have the power to do something. They said this. Very, I mean, right now in New York, schools can enable, identify, support you guys in your hats. I don't know what you guys are doing, but it's okay. Um, no, it's right. Yeah, no, you're right. No, I'll, let me, let, I'll finish. No, no, let no, me no. just finish the point. Right now, there's a lot of things that schools can do in states that they don't because of that stupid NCA memo where they said, in the event of a conflict between state rules and the NCA rules, we expect you to follow NCA rules or otherwise you can leave yeah. the and, voluntary membership. There are no championships in California. The NCAA has been very consistent. No, but but I, I mean to say that if the NCAA wanted to, they could have this vague threat that says, well, if you pay your athletes, you can leave. And what I'm telling you, this is circuitous. You started to disagree with me, but we've arrived at the same point. Then the SEC and the Big Ten could just say, you know what? We don't need to be a part of your league. And you, you said something interesting. Why would they rather – they'd rather just be a part of this system. Money talks. If you could pay them a lot more money to have their own television deal and it's just them, and maybe they poach some other schools from elsewhere and they appoint some stupid figurehead that is the equivalent of a Mark Emmett or a Charlie Baker or Rob Manfred to take the blame and take the punches, so or be Roger it. Roger Goodell. Or Roger Goodell, right? I, they're all punching bags. But I'm just – I'm not ruling out a system where those schools – the conferences defect from the NCA. This is the most realistic it probably has ever been. And I'm not going to say, you know, that the Big Ten and SEC are aligning solely in the good of college sports. Like, I, I, I'm going to take this from somebody else. But once upon a time, the SEC destabilized the Big 12 by taking Texas and Oklahoma. And the death of the Pac-12 was because of what the Big Ten did by pulling UCLA and USC. So those conferences have been out for themselves. Like, it's not such a stretch before, to say they'll do it again. That, what what did the ACC do to the Big East by taking Syracuse and Pitt and, and yeah, but the schools. ACC is not then is not as powerful as the SEC and the no, Big Ten no, are. No, I know, I know, no, because they didn't continue. Right, they they got poached of Maryland and then they didn't keep going. If they had added more schools, they could have been bigger. No, I'm saying, look. If if the SEC and the Big Ten can poach the NCAA tournament contract, you don't think that they would go like is that what you're saying? That you think that they would go ahead and start their own thing? I'm just saying I don't want to rule it out and we've we've we're gonna sound like a broken record, but we are at the very tip of the iceberg 
in terms of changes coming to college sports, as evident by this Tennessee AG's lawsuit, the Dartmouth basketball case, which we're about to get to in a minute. And I'm just not ready to say that the fundamental framework of conferences, the SEC and Big Ten being a part of the NCA, I'm not confident the NCA is going to exist 10 years from now. So why are we so confident that, you, that schools won't, and conferences won't get ahead of it and leave this sinking ship that is the NCA? Okay, table Same, this. But I'm, wait, real quick, I'm not con- confident that these conferences are going to exist. 10 years from now either. We will see. We point out the issues for people to judge. We've been at this for almost half an hour. We got to go to the, I think, story 1A and 1B in whatever order you want to make it. I actually am going to say, I know we led with Tennessee, but we had a lot of thoughts on the Tennessee stuff and wanted to make sure we we adhered to our new listenership over in Knoxville. GBO, shout out to Knoxville. Um, and reminder, before we get to our second topic, Taryn, you are a wild card tonight. Reminder, podcast sponsored by Themis Bar Review, the top bar prep company in the entire galaxy. And if you graduated from law school in Tennessee, guess what? Themis Bar Review is going to help you out in the state of Tennessee. You could have gone to any one of the lovely law schools in Tennessee. Shout out the lovely law schools in Tennessee. But you could be using Themis Bar Review. Okay. Dartmouth basketball. Um, I'm not, I don't know who brought it up. Mike, Taryn. Which one of you said that the Dartmouth basketball situation could have been the biggest story in 2024? I remember we had the conversation. Who said it, Taryn? I did. I said it, and I buy it, dude. This is a huge, huge story. Because I was waiting for the NLRB to decide, because this really is so different from what we saw with Northwestern. Ten years ago, we had the Northwestern case, right? Kane Coulter, they were ready to unionize, but they didn't end up unionizing. One, because they got the decision, basically the same decision that we've got at this level, but they were in a conference that had mostly public schools, public schools that aren't governed by the NLRB necessarily, and then they didn't necessarily have a uh, a NLRB in that current situation that was willing to upset the apple cart. What have we had since then? Jennifer Abruzzo, who is the uh, general counsel of the NLRB, has said that she hates the term student-athlete. She thinks that it's designed to get them to sacrifice their uh, ability to earn and their employment status. And I think that we're just in a totally different circumstance. I think that we're going to get the appeal for sure, which is great, because we'll be able to see what the full NLRB thinks. But we're going to get to a point where these individuals are going to be given the opportunity to vote to form a union. And then what happens after that? Who knows? I think we've all been pretty clear. And generally, people within this sphere have been pretty clear that we're going to have to end up with some sort of employment status, some sort of collective bargaining in order to avoid antitrust issues. And so the fact that we're getting there this way is exciting. And you you mentioned Amanda earlier, and we love Amanda. Uh, Amanda's been following the other NLRB case with USC. And so the fact that we're probably going to get the decisions on both of those things within one year is uh, it's just super exciting. What do you got, Dizzy McFlurry? Dizzle McFlurry, um, that's my stage name when I perform as a rapper. Okay? I have to be very careful with saying stage name with the last name like Lust. So just going to clarify. Um, okay. Uh, Mike K, you've been awfully quiet. I feel like you've been, uh, got all this potential energy ready to come out on the Dartmouth stuff. Um, 
Do you think the Dartmouth story is bigger? I, I'm sensing you think the Dartmouth story is bigger than Tennessee. No offense to our Knoxville listenership, but I'm, I'm getting that vibe from you. I think that face is saying Dartmouth, you think, is the bigger story. I do. I do. Um, yeah, I covered it on the podcast uh, back in September when they uh, initially filed the case. And I thought then it was like, you know, like you had mentioned, the overused phrase, the tip of the iceberg. But it really is. Um, I just... This is huge for everything. And you guys are talking about uh, schools and how the NCAA is going to completely shift. And, uh, you know, when it comes to like the NIL situation with Tennessee, um, the smaller schools and the schools that, you know, are the majority really uh, that are in the red um, and are not making a profit, you know, they're um, really just terrible business model at the end of the day, uh, collegiate sports for a lot of the schools and um, a lot of the schools that I've I mean, just studied in in college and worked at whatever it is like you just don't you see the way that it uh, their business model, it just doesn't work. So when it comes to a school like Tennessee or the SEC, you guys are talking about these massive conferences. What happens to the little guy or the smaller conferences when I mean, that's really Dartmouth's big um, appeal to this is how are we going to do this? Um, they, that's their big, big responses. Unlike the institutions like the Alabama, Tennessee, um, you know, their athletics are generating millions. I mean, upon millions in net revenue. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, that's, that's why I do think that this is a bigger deal because I think that um, while I don't want this to come off as like, I'm not in support of the students being employees. Cause I am, it's just the fact of how, is this actually going to begin yeah. and how are, how is it going to be afforded? No, I, I think it's a great question. And just because it's a difficult question doesn't mean that we should shy away from it because these rights exist. The student athletes are generating an amount of revenue generally, more generally that requires that the people that are earning this revenue pay them for the services that they are pre, uh, uh, providing. And so I think there are a lot of good ideas out there. Victoria Jackson, who uh, was uh, on the panel that spoke before Cap- uh, Capitol Hill recently, last month, um, she's provided one for uh, for real uh, um, for uh, Olympic sports, which I think was really interesting. And um, that is to have sports gambling taxes pay for that. So I think that's one way that we could go about it. But I think generally that if we're in a a larger conference section, super NCAA, whatever it is, that is sharing the revenue with the players more generally, that doesn't mean that every conference is going to make the same, right? Because not every conference is going to be on television the same. But to share that amount, I think, is, uh, is something that's doable and is valuable and should be provided to the student athletes, whatever they're able to collectively bargain, because that is what they're producing. These sports, as valuable as the IP is, and it is, right? We all watch college sports because we we value that our alma maters are part of that. But the people that are providing that value are the people that play wearing our colors. And so they should be compensated by the amount that is created by their activity. Yeah. And the way that the national labor relations act even states is like, you know, they have to be paid in the way that they're, you know, they can't be 
basically Dartmouth exerting all of it, taking all the monetary, um, you know, basically controlling the players, uh, like we were saying about NIL, uh, controlling a player's name, image, and likeness. This is also, like you had said, performing the actual, uh, you know, job. You know, they're on the court, they're on the football field. This is their, their performance is directly being benefited by Dartmouth and all the, all these other schools. But, and then, you know, there's what, 300 plus 360 plus schools in division one. And then they have, you know, a lot of these schools have 15 division one programs. It's, I mean, as much as there, I mean, there are billions, you know, eight, 10, $11 billion in taxes and sports gambling. I love that idea. And it's just like, where, where does it go from, you know, we talk on the surface level of like football, basketball, the, the highest earning sports, but um, as someone that's in, that's been in college athletics and, you know, sees the ground level of like the cross country team, I'm the dynamic between the revenue sharing of a football athlete and a cross country runner, the disparity in that would be so significant that I'm then brings in complete other, you know, issues that I, that I also kind of question. A couple things here, just some notes of the story. If people haven't been following it, Dartmouth wins, you know, NLRB recognizes their, their considers them to be employees. This is now, um, you know, I think there's 10 days to appeal from the date of the decision. So we expect Dartmouth to appeal the statement that Dartmouth provided makes it seem like they're going to be working with the NCA in collaboration with one another to appeal. Comments from the f- current and former students um, associated with the men's basketball team that they're happy with the win, they're going to pursue it. But not only that, they're going to start an Ivy League Players Association. So already they're saying, okay, this is not just going to be a Dartmouth decision. It's going to be applicable across the Ivy Leagues. So the Ivy Leagues have different rules, right? They, they're not giving the same type of uh, scholarships are not being paid the same amount of money. Somebody asked me in my college sports world, do you think this decision with Dartmouth is going to have precedential value across the other private institutions, um, you know, across the country? The the question is like, I don't Dartmouth, you, you would think maybe had a tougher case than some of these higher end schools, like uh, power five schools, like USC um, or you name it, that are making a lot of money. But the fact that Dartmouth wins, I, I think, is probably a really good sign if you're rooting for this across the country. Or you might just yeah. be thinking that chaos is going to happen. So, yeah, it's they're getting they're getting support from the professional level, too. The MLBPA put out a statement in support of it. Um, the other uh, players yeah. associations have supported All it. The like they're there to get this. Unions are going to yep. be in, uh, in favor of this, of course. But of course, uh, they Dan, will. Mike, does this make a difference that they are uh, non-scholarship athletes in the Ivy Leagues? Does that, does that matter? I, so I think it makes it different, but I mean, we're still talking about if you, you know, we, I was going over this at work for something like when you're still testing, whether someone is employee, you have to ask whether one of the question is whether they help their employer derive revenue and create revenue. So Dartmouth's question was, or Dartmouth's response when they were hashing this thing out with the NLRB was like, no, Dartmouth isn't as profitable as some of these other schools. And Dartmouth has a lot of expenses. And they're trying to argue like the net revenue is much smaller. But It's an argument of relativism. Right. But like, if you're going to say Dartmouth, which, you know, is not those kids. I don't think anyone's making, you know, seven figure NIL deals or anything like that. 
if those athletes that don't make as much money for their school, granted the money that they're, they're not getting scholarships, but I would think an argument really is even stronger at some of these traditional power five and, and even group of five schools that are not, you know, restricted by some of the Ivy league conditions. So I, I think it's helpful um, if you're, if you're trying to have this argument at other schools, not if you're rooting for college sports to like never change and, you know, and have these college football, I mean, college basketball purists, but yeah, this an agent of chaos has certainly been inserted into the waters. No, I, I find it very difficult to believe that there aren't really any genuine purists that are still watching. I, you know, like most of the people that are like, I can't believe that it's this way. I'm never going to watch again. They almost certainly have stopped watching by now, right? Like the the point is that we're getting to uh, a stage where people are going to be compensated for their value. And hopefully some of the issues that some of us have pointed out that we don't necessarily like, um, even being in favor of, uh, of student athlete rights are going to be addressed and, and that those will be fixed and that going forward will have a, uh, a product that people really like and enjoy watching and that generates revenue and, that student-athletes can benefit from the the work that they're putting in. I was interested because you had mentioned, obviously, like the scholarship aspect, because uh, that was my first thought, too. Like, the, you know, in, in school, uh, in my undergrad, I did a whole uh, – I just – should students – should student athletes be compensated as always, obviously in all of sport, I took sport management. So that was constantly a conversation in all of my classes and uh, we had projects on it. And it was always like, that was the main thing. They're compensated with education, with scholarships. Um, but the NLRB, what they used to classify that, because like you said, um, you know, Dartmouth is non-scholarship. They're claiming that the compensation that, that they uh, did receive that was enough is apparel, you know, things like, oh, you're getting handed apparel, you're getting handed a stipend for food. Um, you know, they, they, that's what they're classifying here as compensation. So like you had said, Dan, uh, these larger schools, I mean, some of these players are now, um, I saw a player today, I bought a, um, I believe it's the Georgia quarterback, uh, bought a $270,000 yeah. Lamborghini uh, I mean, it's going to be proving it at those at the, and, you know, if any of those type of schools like a Tennessee decide to go down this route, um, if the NIL route doesn't, you know, but, for but this, Mike, what does that matter? Right? Like what, what does it matter if the, if uh, Ohio state wide receiver or the Georgia quarterback gets a, uh, a car that they buy with their NIL earnings, or if they're given a car as a result of their NIL earnings, what does any of that matter, right? Like they're they're cre they're doing work that's creating value that results in payment, right? Is that not the whole thing? So so even these players, right? Dartmouth players who are not going to be at the level where they're earning enough to pay for a Lamborghini, they're still on TV. They're still doing work that is under the control of their institution which is the key factor, right? And and you know this because of tort, right? We think about what is the control? When we, when we think about torts, is the employer telling the employee to do a certain thing, this individual? And, and we think about this in the frame of, are they an employee? 
or is it in an independent contractor? And in this case, the NLRB, this small regional office, has found that they are under such control that they are an employee. And I think that that's the right decision. I'm not sure how you could say, hey, be at practice at this time, lift at this time, take these classes, make sure that you're at this place at this time. Oh, by the way, you've got to play at this place at this time. You've got to make this trip. Make sure that you tell your professors that you're not going to be there for this time because, oh, by the way, we've got to travel one day early. And if you don't do this certain thing, I'm going to limit your ability to perform. All of that stuff is way outside the bounds of like, this is not a theater student. This is not a student that's like in the math club. This is somebody that is being given direct orders and they're not going to qualify for whatever scholarship that they get unless they perform these certain tests. That is a level of control which meets the certain threshold of employment. And that's what this regional office has found. This is what Jennifer Abruzzo believes. This is what the larger board is going to find, I believe. No, I, I agree. The control factor is the biggest thing for me. And that's what everybody has been really sticking to, uh, that all these athletes are completely controlled. Um, obviously, Dartmouth doesn't have athletic scholarships, but the way that you get around that is I'm guaranteeing, you know, most of those athletes have some sort of financial aid for uh, academics. It isn't, uh, you know, it is a very academic based school. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of these athletes have have pretty good GPAs coming in. But a lot of that financial aid is just going to come from a different resource, a, a different source. But um, I think the biggest thing that we've talked about, let's not talk about Dartmouth for a second, but like everything, like the entire like D1 prospect of, of uh, athletics is the control piece. Like they are different from a generic student. That, that, was, that was a huge wedge that we saw that was, that was stated in the Alston case. I mean, th- there was a massive difference between a generic student athlete and uh, I'm sorry, a generic student and a student athlete. And that was, we, we saw that even in the decision uh, coming down in the ninth circuit, they did that the NCAA was trying to create this like parallel that students and student athletes and anybody can really have this ability uh, and, and that student athletes aren't so different, blah, 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 except that student athletes have, limited access or I'm sorry, students have limited access because they can't use the student athletes facilities, but the student athletes have all these facilities that they're required to be in at such and such a time. They have practice, they have lift, they have study hall, they have uh, meal prep, all, all that stuff, they, they, nutrition, everything. They've got so many things that they're required to do that that is exactly what you guys were all just saying where it's, it's leading towards Dartmouth having this control factor over it. Now, obviously the big piece that Dartmouth had to come had to combat was whether or not that that control and that work was in, in the, the form of some sort of compensation, which as Mike alluded to was kind of given in sort of this apparel and perks and, and different things like that. We see it in a different form now with NIL. And I think why Dartmouth is going to be a big deal is a lot of other schools and other student athletes have a stronger case because there there's almost this more like connection of of compensation directly derived from their participation in the athletics especially especially when you have certain nil collectives that might communicate with the the athletic program directly and again we've already had our conversation about inducements and it's separate in that sense but 
you know there's a connection, you know there's a tie, you know there's this kind of uh, synergy between everyone where there's like this kind of uh, connection between athletes and being paid for being an athlete at that school. So um, I, I think another interesting piece with Dartmouth and that this is really, you guys have covered everything. So I, I don't want to, you know, um, belabor the point, but I think what is, and it's been mentioned, Dartmouth operates, you know, in the negative, they're basically also coming in saying like, we don't have the money to pay these athletes because we operate, you know what? That's because you pay coaches too much. You pay like there's there's different resources. And Taryn, you mentioned the whole gambling, you know, having having compensation coming out of the gambling taxes and things like that. There are other options, but like that's a that's an excuse that that's an excuse that you can't. Yeah, no, I I think it is that I think that's part of it, especially for the schools that are paying their coaches like nine million dollars a year or their administrators like a, a whole heck of a ton. But I think it's also just that um, to say that is to ignore what the intrinsic value of having athletics, intercollegiate athletics at your school is. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that's significant and mm-hmm. they need to, uh, to, you know, recognize that mm-hmm. and not every sport has to make mm-hmm. money. And, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the case that that does because not every department makes money, right? Not every employer the employee that you're going to have is going to make money. Dan, you have some thoughts on that? I think to, to echo both those points. And I, I, you know, I think we're all kind of at a logical point here, but for, for 10 years, 50 years ago, all the way back instead, when, when a school would do really well. And I I remember we talked about it when the documentary came out, when Johnny Manziel did very well for the, for Texas A&M, we just watched that uh, at the time we had watched a Johnny Manziel doc. I think there was a number that he made like, 700 million in jersey sales for the school and that money doesn't get paid to the players they found a way to reinvest that in building a new stadium sometimes you reinvest that by hiring new coaches we just have to as a space understand that that money can be invested in players so it's going to take a while for people to readjust their thinking the ncaa is caught in the past by thinking we should and i know we're going back to tennessee but like let's punish tennessee for Giving a student athlete, um, you know, like $8 million. That's the reported number, not the necessarily the real number. But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sensing that there's anything wrong with that. Like, we're not punishing schools for building bigger buildings. Like, we're not investigating them for how they got that money. But, you know, I think the NCAA is caught in the past. But anyway, NCAA, Tennessee, Dartmouth, a lot of stuff going on in this space. Now, if this might be the last episode we have this week. I have... I have talked to some about a second episode this week, but let's see if it comes to fruition. If this is the last episode, and I just have you three for the last time this week, we need to give our best bets of the week. This is the Super Bowl week team. Okay? So we put this in the the episode, um, or this this episode of the books, we start to do it. Um, We've had some good picks in the year. We've had some bad ones. Um, Nobody that was on this podcast at any point picked the Niners or Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. I think Bryson had the cop-out pick and picked um, Ravens 49ers Super Bowl. He was going with the logo. Um, I'm going to make this quick. We can. We don't have to spend so much analysis on this. Um, my pick, I bet on this podcast. I picked the Bills. I think I picked the Ravens. I bet on the Ravens. Been wrong twice in a row. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. I don't know what the expression is. I'm not getting fooled three times. I'm going Patty Mahomes 
I'm going to take the Chiefs money line at plus 105, the better edge, best bet segment of the week. Use your promo code CONDUCT for a $20 match. Mike K, I'm going to you. Who do you like, Niners, Chiefs? I like the Chiefs, but can I just apologize for maybe the worst betting year in NFL history coming out of my, my mouth this season? Apology accepted. Taryn, Chiefs, Niners. Uh, can I do a prop bet? Only if it wins. I'm going to say uh, Christian McCaffrey. Over MVP. Yards. Right. Yeah, no, I'll go MVP. I think they're going to win. I think the Niners are going to win. Okay, double one. Okay, Mike Lawson, wrap us up. I just want to I want to clear the record here, Dan Luss, and, and uh, maybe I'll even uh, throw a little J. Cole reference in there. The, the George Bush quote, if you want, there is the there is the old saying, but I'm gonna call, I'm gonna hit you with the George Bush quote, and it kind of ties back to the episode. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, "Fool me once, shame on shame on you." Fool me, you can't get fooled again. Can't get fooled again. <laughs> so I'm I'm thrown out. It, right now, the Chiefs are the underdog, and I think they're the hottest football team in the last five weeks. And I can't I can't hottest go brand. Them. I can't hottest go brand. against them. Taylor Swift with her whatever there is four Grammys. She's flying in from Japan. She's You're not flying in from Japan. Patrick Mahomes. Oh, how brave. Travis Listen, Kelsey's getting three touchdowns. There's no underdog in the Super Bowl. There's no pick. We can't say let's go Lions, let's go Ravens. We got we got two favorites, and somebody has to be the favorite underdog. There's no there's no big picks here. Um, Mike's looking at me like there's no favorite. There's no underdog. These are both powerhouse teams. Somebody has to be the underdog, but no one's really the underdog. If either team wins, it's not going to shock anybody. Um, this, you know, I I know a lot of people have been acting like they're upset that this is the matchup, but. These are the two best teams, man. This is fuck. They're not the two best teams. They're not the two best they are. teams. No. No, they are. The Ravens are a better team on paper. They don't have the, the playoffs. Bills, I think, were a better team. But listen, when it comes to the playoffs, nobody is better than Patty Mahomes. And we are dumb as a betting audience. The playoffs began, and I looked at this bet. The Chiefs were 11-1 to to win the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes... I, you can check that. I know that to be fact. Don't give me that. I know, but I've made a lot of money betting on them. I, I'm not Holmes saying they only correct. makes the AFC Conference Championship. We didn't see it coming, so that's why the teams were better for the entirety of the year. But when it comes to Patrick Mahomes, it really only depends where we are in the playoffs because they're playing well, a little rope with them. This is the Vegas best defense he's had. Uh, preyed on a bunch of dunces, but no, I've made a good amount of money betting on the Chiefs. This postseason, but I, I'm saying that, look, these two teams, they've dealt with a lot of injuries, but these are the two best teams. These are the two best teams, and I'm really excited that we're getting this matchup in the Super Bowl, and it's a replay of a great Super Bowl, one that had a, a second-half comeback, not necessarily 28-3, to but a great second half comeback for the ages. And I'm excited to see whether the Niners can actually get it done this year. They have a functional quarterback. Travis Kelsey prop at half a touchdown he is right now. Slam the over. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100% because NFL is going to make it. Team, team, we should say this. None of us are professional bettors. These are all the squarest of bets of the squarest of bets. But listen, if they win, 
you know who to thank. If they lose, we're not guilty. Okay, that'll do it for us here at Conduct Detrimental, a very highly college sports episode, but we have to. It's the biggest sports biggest sports law issue in the landscape. Um, okay, that'll do it for us here at Conduct Detrimental. For Mike L, Mike K, and T-Baby, Taryn Sharma, we'll see you next episode on Conduct Detrimental. Detrimental.